Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Tommy Orange, whose 2018 debut novel, There, There, won the Penn Hemingway Award and the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Award, and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Tommy is a graduate of the MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts. An enrolled member of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma, he was born and raised in Oakland, California. There There was one of my favorite books of 2018. One of my favorite books in a long time, actually. The title is taken from Gertrude Stein's famous line about Oakland, which is also her hometown. There's no there, there. In poetic, fiery, and inventive prose, Tommy examines modern Native life and urban Native life, generational trauma, loss, and recovery through 12 memorable characters whose narratives intersect at the big Oakland powwow. The book begins with a prologue so searingly brilliant that I read it, then read it aloud, then read it aloud to the next person I saw. The whole book is kind of like that. The novel tells a painful and complex story, or more precisely, stories. As we discuss here, part of the work of the book was to tell a bigger, more diverse narrative instead of a monolithic, quote-unquote, native story. We also talk about being a messy worker, taking care of the reader, and how parenthood made Tommy take writing more seriously. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation, in which we discuss some of Tommy's favorite emerging native writers, by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. This was something that I knew that I loved. What good am I if I can't go after the thing I want to do the most? to start by asking you actually about the prologue because it, it's so arresting and I and I love it so much and it's such a an interesting way to start but also like goes against a lot of traditional craft advice I think you know to start with a prologue uh-huh. and so I just wanted to talk to you about kind of where that came into the process um it, it feels like the kind of thing that once you wrote it maybe some stuff really clicked for you I don't know if that's true but it has that energy to me um you know, there was always going to be a prologue um, because I really like prologues um, in novels and how they can sort of be weird and do whatever they want before the structure of the, of the novel starts. But I, yeah, I didn't really write the prologue until, I didn't finish the prologue until toward the end. Mm. It really came together during a super dark time in my life. And um, I'm not quite sure how I kept writing through that period of time, but but it was it was a combination of, of research and just I was trying to set the scene for what an urban Indian is and it kind of ended up taking me all the way back to contact and um, the original settlers and this Indian head pattern kept showing up. Um, but I wrote it, well, everyone's calling it an essay now, um, but I wrote it from the royal we. It's a little more subtle the way it reads because I'm not using the, the we that much. Um, but it was so, supposed to be sort of chorus of voices of, of urban Indian people. And it was originally twice the size, and my editor um, told me no. And so I cut it in half, and that's how we ended up with a, a prologue and interlude. Right, okay, so they so they came kind of from the same energetic burst, that makes sense. Exactly, yeah. They were all once... Um, yeah, the book sold... Actually, the, the prologue was a big selling point when my agent went out with it to publishers. That's so interesting. It just like, I think stands to reason that the like, just write what you need to write the way you need to write it. Cause I feel like 
I've definitely been like in workshops where like some of us have had prologues and the the workshop leader has just been like, these are always a bad idea, you know? <laughs> um, but it is so yeah. effective for the, exactly the reasons you mentioned it. It can sort of stylistically be its own weird little thing. And then also really sets the, the context and the tone. Yeah. And I think, um, I think I, I definitely started doing it and knew I wanted to do it before I got into my MFA and, as between 2005 and 2014, when I started my MFA, I'd, I had no um, no writing teachers and no formal education in writing. It was all self-taught and all just working away on my own. So I didn't have anybody telling me that it was a bad idea, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, for sure. What, what made you decide to go after an MFA? Um, I was actually pretty much anti-MFA and just figuring that writers had been becoming writers for... Um, for longer without MFAs than they have with MFAs. Right. So I felt like there was a compromise, the risk of compromising voice and um, just sort of churning out something that, like, it doesn't come from the same creative place. It comes from, like, don't do this, this, and this, and write this kind of book. And I'd read enough craft books to kind of know that perspective. But this was a, a native writing program, and it was also low residency, which means I didn't have to relocate my life, which wouldn't have been possible. And uh, and it was affordable. So there was a lot of reasons why I was into this particular MFA. The faculty looked amazing. And, you know, but I knew it would be a different program because it was a Native program at a Native institution. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was reading, you know, in preparation for our conversation, I was reading the, the BuzzFeed piece about that program. And, you know, I, I at the beginning of this season of the podcast, I had we had a, I had a roundtable episode about you know should you go for an MFA, and that was a, a big thing that we talked about was diversity of voices, and you know is is there is there a way to kind of go through those systems and not come out with the same same voice and the same type of writing, and and you know I think always of like I know he's problematic right now like so many other people are becoming problematic right now but it, but it it's, it's makes the point so eloquently Juno Diaz said um you know why would I go for an MFA nobody there looks like me uh-huh. and that yeah. point of just like well you know is it is it really lifting up all of these different stories or all these different ways of telling a story or is it kind of just trying to squeeze everything through the same tube yeah I mean it, it's I think most MFAs have traditionally taught white male writers worship white male writers. Yeah. And they were built on the idea that you could teach writing and that was kind of a foreign thing. You could teach creative writing. MFAs when they were designed were when they were making textbooks and trying to make it like official because they've always had kind of a not great relationship with the universities that they're a part of. Mm -hmm. You had to sort of quantify or qualify what good writing is and that came from modeling after Hemingway and Carver and um, there, there was just certain, Amy Hempel. I feel like there were certain people that had a particular style mm-hmm. that is perfectly valid, but I don't think that's the only way that uh, good writing happens. And so I, I kind of knew that that's what it would be. And I, my reading path was filled with um, lots of strange voices from around the world. I read a lot in translation, and they were breaking all sorts of rules that I knew these this school thought was teaching was wrong. And I think it taught me to. Um, to believe that I could, if I wrote it well enough, I could pull off more than, than they want you to believe you can pull off. Right. Yeah. I was really curious to ask you about kind of the first 
the first some of the first books and authors who moved you because you did come to writing pretty late, right? And and being kind of a fan of writing pretty late. Yeah, it was um it was after I graduated from college actually. I got a degree in sound engineering because I was a music a musician and I happened to get my degree right before the MP three completely took over the world. Mm-hmm. And so it was mostly analog recording and my education became pretty obsolete, pretty fast. And so I just got a job at a used bookstore um, and I was mostly reading philosophy and religion, just sort of searching for meaning, floundering in my early 20s. And I, it was Borges and Kafka that I feel like mm. stood out uh, as early. And they're like a perfect bridge from philosophy to to fiction. Absolutely. And they're doing a lot of weird stuff and they're really... Um, they're deep thinkers and um, philosophers in their own right. Um, but the first two novels that um, that made me want to write a novel were uh, Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole and uh, um, Sylvia Plath's Bell Jar, mm. which are two very different kinds of novels. And, but there, but there is something about their despair and the, the way they they were able to write about it that I think was appealing to me. And feeling like, oh, you can do this, because um, I didn't, I didn't grow up a reader at all, so I, I didn't even really know what a novel was, and um, that was my first sort of entryway into um, thinking about one day writing a novel. Because mostly, I felt like I was going to be catching up for a long time. Going back to that idea of of kind of preserving voice, I know this is a hard thing to quantify, but you, do you feel like you found your voice? pretty quickly as a writer, it feels like such a fully formed voice. I do feel like I found my voice before I got into the MFA, which I think was important because there, there's two things that I think are really important at, at an MFA that I don't think people necessarily think of right away. One of them is to get over your own authority issues because you're working with published um, authors. Mm-hmm. And um, that comes with like them challenging stuff you're doing on the page and you kind of have to take what seems useful and then realize what feels truest to you. And it's kind of, it can be a challenge to get over those authority issues. And the other thing is establishing relationships with published authors, which gets you access to the publishing world, which Mm -hmm. is another reason why it makes sense to to go to an MFA, because this is like a real actual doorway, like teachers will send student work to agents or, you know, this, this kind of thing happens. So I, I do feel like between 2005 and yeah, by, by 2012, by the time I really started writing into it, I feel like I'd found my voice and was still kind of looking for the voices of the novel, though. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved you. You make a comment in that BuzzFeed piece that I really loved about deciding on the polyphonic form because you come from a voiceless community and this idea of giving as many voices sort of audience as you could. Um, I thought that, that that resonated a lot to me, even just with when I think about like my own relationship to storytelling with like where I'm from. But um, I would love for you to talk more about that if you don't mind. Well, I must admit, and I've, I've said this elsewhere, uh, I feel like that comment maybe was slightly not completely honest. Okay. Um, it feels a little bit more like an afterthought and like this was the beginning, like BuzzFeed, my book wasn't even out and BuzzFeed was asking me this question and I wanted to sound really smart. And like <laughs> sure, I really sure. thought this out. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's something that my unconscious was definitely doing. And of course, yeah. It was, you know, having a polyphonic novel 
when uh, most depictions of Native people is like a monolithic thing. It makes a lot of sense to spread that dynamic range. But all of these things are kind of afterthoughts. I think I trusted the process, and I, and I, just from a craft perspective, I, I liked polyphonic novels. Mm-hmm. I like to read them. I think it really it works out really well to have to feel like you're from a voiceless community to have all these voices emerge. So it's not completely a lie, but uh, I don't I didn't contrive. To oh do sure, that. yeah. One of the early models for me was uh, Let the Great World Spin by mm, Colin McCann. I love that book so much. My book structurally is kind of the inverse of his, uh-huh. whereas his seven-page prologue, you find out throughout the book how everyone's connected to that image of the guy crossing the, the Twin Towers. Right. And um, that's sort of the thing you keep realizing as you go through these lives, like how are they all connected to the Twin Towers and this event? And um, the powwow serves the same way in mine, except it's where you end up. Right, right, yeah. That's that's really interesting. Um, yeah, the, is the was the powwow um, was that something that you knew early on that you wanted that to be kind of like a, a central organizing kind of setting? Yeah, I knew that actually at the end of 2010. It was right around the time that I found out I was going to be a father, and um, I mean, I was scared to death, mm-hmm. and it made me want to take writing more seriously in a way that I'm not sure. If that hadn't happened, I don't know if it would have happened in the same way or with the same fervor or um, the way I went at writing changed. I think I was writing a lot more experimental stuff and um, and I wasn't close to figuring out a novel. And mm-hmm. so the idea came to me to have all these lives converge at an Oakland, at a Palo, I don't know, at the Oakland Coliseum. And so... Uh, but I thought of the idea, and then I was becoming a father, so I, d- I did not write into it until the beginning of 2012. Mm-hmm. And I, I was I would wake up before 5 a.m. or at 5 a.m. and um, work, and when he went to bed at night, I'd work again. Uh, and I was working full-time at the time. So, um, but but the, the basic premise I had thought of and then sort of sat on it for a little while. That's interesting, Um because I feel like it also could have just as easily gone the other direction where you find something like that out and you're almost like, oh, I need to cut this shit out and get a real job or something. You know, I mean, you had a real job, but, you know, like it could have easily, I think, made a different person or made a person in a different frame of mind kind of drop it all together instead of get more serious about it. Totally. Like if I was like work, working in some capacity related to writing, but, but it was making me no money. Mm-hmm. Um like I did have a decent job at the time, so um, I think that helped. I mean, it was also it was like okay, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna do my best to teach another human how to human, mm-hmm. and that part's really scary. And and then it it caused me to be ref, like self reflective about um, how good was I doing at it, and this was something that I knew that I loved, and and. Um, what good am I if I can't go after the thing I want to do the most? Mm-hmm. It was it sort of came from that place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how long in all, all told were you working on the book? It was, it's roughly six years, I would say. That's what I usually say. Can you talk a little bit about, um, I had read in this, in the New York Times profile of you, um, you mentioned like having struggled with the structure. Um, and, and one of the things that like, I do really love to talk about on the show, you know, to, to whatever degree writers or game is kind of really getting into the like, nitty gritty of like how drafts evolve and like where you started and where you went and making changes and things like that. Um, so if you, if you want to talk into that process a little bit. 
sure. Well, the first year, I felt like it was auditions. Like I was just trying out a slew of characters. And really important ones, I think the most important ones showed up in the first year. And there was lots that didn't make it anywhere. Uh, and some that made it and then got cut. Mm-hmm. So Opal, Theo Victoria Bearshield, Dean Oxendean, Tony Loneman, and Orville and his brothers all showed up the first year. Mm. And they sort of, there were clear relationships in my mind how they, um, and what roles they would play in the book. But structurally, it was a mess, like all the way up until, I think at the McDowell Colony, I had a month after not ever having any time aside from time that I just made. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a solid month to work on it. And I, I think structurally, I was I was able to pull it together in a um, more cohesive way. And then in the summer of 2014 is when I started the MFA. And uh, it's a book-based program, so I think it helped me to focus, like by the end of two years, I need to have this thing looking like a book and structurally needs to be cleaned up a lot. But I, I, I'm a very messy worker. Um, I once tried to make a an intricate map of the characters mm. and it, seeing it visually actually made it worse for me. <laughs> um, yeah. So if I, uh, keeping them in my head and, and uh, I go for long runs as part of my way to get some of the deeper solutions that are harder to think of at the page, it worked out better for me just to hold them in my head and then sometimes an answer would pop out and I'd quickly tap it in my notes on my phone and then start doing the work to write out the the idea or the solution that I'd come up with. Um, and then there was a big structural shift during the editing process working with an editor. Mm-hmm. And as I told you before, the prologue was 14 pages. And um, I cut it in half and, and created this interlude, which I hadn't seen before. And uh, I also, during this was all during a month after I, my editor gave me a spring 2019 pub date. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Trump had just been elected and I didn't think we'd even make it that far right. into the future. And so I, I asked if I work hard, can I get a sooner one? And they were like, sure, but there's no guarantees that like, there's no way to time these things out because if they don't like the edits that I make, then, then it gets delayed and, and it could go back and forth like that. But I, but I knocked it all out in a month. And, um, once the interlude was in, I started thinking about, um, these many chapters that happened in the interlude that sort of uh, it was for the reader to kind of get refreshed on who we've seen so mm-hmm, far. Mm-hmm. So you revisit in these many chapters um, after the interlude piece, you, you get these many chapters to remind you before we go on to new characters. And then the powwow is structured similarly. You're revisiting all these different characters in short segments. And it also um, happens to work well for pacing and leading up to a climax. So it kind of is doing double duty that that uh, part of the structure. Yeah, and it is a very, um, it's kind of a very user-friendly book in that way, in that, you know, it does have a lot of characters, but you're never very far away from one of them in terms of, of your process through it, through the story. Yeah, I, I um, at some point during, while writing, I came to this realization about the reader, just the general reader. Yeah. Um, and to try to do your best to take care of their time and, and, and the pace and the pacing and like to really put work into readability and really try to do the work of like meeting the reader somewhere halfway. Um, because, you know, the reader could be doing anything 
or reading anything. There's so many books and there's so many shows to watch and there's so many movies or, you know, there's so many things to do that people do do. And reading's not necessarily high on the list. Um, so at some point I, um, I realized that I really wanted to, to put effort into readability. Yeah. And it's a, it's a tough needle to thread, like being kind of approachable in that way, but then also, I mean, I, I like this in, in a, in a reading experience. And I think a lot of other writers do too, but like that, that feeling of interaction or like, you know, when you, when you kind of still have to work a little bit as a reader, like that, that brings its own kind of feeling of satisfaction and then, but, but still making that approachable, you know? Yeah. Can we talk a little bit, um, about, representation. So I was, I was thinking what I was, when I was getting ready to talk to you about, um, a conversation I had with another Appalachian writer on the show, um, a guy named Robert Guype. And, and we talked a lot about writing, um, not necessarily writing to your people, but knowing that they're reading. Um, and I wondered if, if that was something that sounded familiar to you or how you think about, um, you know, I think a lot of times when, and I think this is, it seems clear that this has kind of been shoved upon you from the, the pieces that I've read about you. You know, there's a lot of, it's like, okay, well, this is the story that stands, that stands for everybody. You know, when, when you're talking about stories that, that don't get told as well or, or voices that are, are very underrepresented. Um, how did you kind of approach that in terms of, of kind of who you were talking to and how you were talking to them to tell the story? Um, well, I definitely thought that um, if, if it became a book, that which felt like a really big if, mm -hmm. um, the people who would end up reading it would be Native people because that's normally who reads Native books. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, would, I was thinking in terms of, um, of that would be who would end up reading it if it ever... Uh, but I, I, I was also writing to, you know, in a way to to literature, like this feels like a void and I, I want to represent the city that I come from and the people, kind of people that I come from and also made decisions like, um, which didn't feel like decisions, but like having people that have jobs that mm. don't normally, aren't normally represented. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, a class thing that you don't get a lot of uh, janitors in literature or like people that, like working low-end nonprofit jobs or substance abuse counselors. Um, and these are the people that people of the native world, um, the, the occupations that I have them doing are common ones, um, in the native world. And so I felt like writing about those, uh, was definitely also speaking to native lives and the types of people that I thought would read it. The director of my school told me that he'd give me a teaching job if I published a book. Um, cause you know, n native authors are not knocking down his door to get mm -hmm. jobs there. And, um, so I had, I figured if I maybe I'd publish it at a university press and then, um, and then I'd make my students read it and that, you know, I didn't really have, um, too much of an audience in mind. I, I've more thought about the reader and the reading experience than anything. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I was just really curious to hear your take on that. Like almost every article I read about you, like also mentions Sherman Alexi, like this idea that just like, there's like, you know, a person who stands in for the thing. And, and I, and so I just want to, I wondered what your um, level of comfort was with that idea. 
oh, well, this thing is more of like an afterthought, this sort of burden of representing a people kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of a, a separate question, to be clear. Like I was asking you before about like, you know, in the writing itself, but then also just kind of this idea of like, you know, I think about this a lot with Appalachia with like people are like, oh, hillbilly elegy. And I'm like, no not hillbilly elegy, you know, and, and uh, I know like Sherman Alexi didn't write hillbilly elegy. I know it's not that quite the same relationship, but just that idea of kind of being, being the touch point for so many people now. Yeah, totally. And some of those sweeping statements that are made, like the voice of native America or like, you know, nobody said that particularly, but it's spoken in those terms. Right. Um, and so I, whenever I get that question in public, I'm very clear about, um, I'm representing a very specific part of Native life, and there are like over 576, I mean, there's 576 federally recognized tribes, and and more than that who aren't and should be, and that's a whole different subject. Mm -hmm. Um, And those lives can look so utterly different. Mm -hmm. And so the the concept of Native America um, is, thinking of it in those terms is really flawed, even though we do have more in common than we do different. there's just no way to speak. I mean, there's a certain pan-Indianism that came around in during the civil rights movement, which was unifying and important, but tribes are a little bit more wanting to be considered as individual sovereign nations. And, um, cause every, every tribe has a, their own unique language and worldview and stories and history. Um, so the, the idea that I would be the voice for, all Native American people is really um, bothersome for a lot of reasons for me. And I try to, you know, I try to point people in the direction of other Native authors um, as a way to deflect that way of thinking and also to just, like, plug my friends' books. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash WMFA podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. One of my favorite passages in the book is actually um, in an Edwin Black section um, where he's talking about like modern indigenous music and like being modern, but like trying to thread modernity and the past and like being reverential of the past, but moving forward. Cause I think it's so hard to, I mean, you have to, cause you have to be doing a lot of things at once. Like you're saying that prologue covers hundreds of years of history. And then so to try to kind of represent everything and still be looking forward and still be like moving ahead is difficult. Yeah, totally. But this is something that don't, people don't um, necessarily always attribute to, to traditions. And that is uh, part of, part of most traditions is adaptation. So it's ways to adapt to new circumstances and also keep what's most important. And over time, these things change. Like, if traditionalism was was all about keeping to the exact way that it's always gone, we'd all be practicing, you know, a ten thousand year old ritual. Mm-hmm. But but it it is actually you know part of tradition to adapt and, um, but it's not easy because you have to you know, like if you were writing in the in the sort of lineage of Appalachian writers, um, you you do have to find something recognizably done before to be in that family. 
of writers. Um, but you don't want to date yourself. Or, right. right. You know, I don't know if it's, there's, it's not really a, the best, best compar- comparison because it's uh, culture versus like region is not, it's sure. not the best comparison, but, but you know what I mean. I do um, know what you mean. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, the, the, again, it's not, it's not a one-to-one comparison at all, but the rural urban comparison that you make is, is what feels most similar to me. Um, even though, you know, oh, okay. Like there's not necessarily a ur- an urban life on the same scale, but that idea of okay, well, if you didn't, you know, I, I think maybe the counterpoint for me to like, well, you didn't grow up on a reservation would be like, okay, well, I didn't grow up, you know, in on a farm. I didn't grow up in the middle of the way, you know. It's like you, I think, like in in Appalachian literature, there's a lot of narrative around like like very rural self subsistence. And if you didn't do yeah. that, it can kind of feel like you don't have a place in that narrative. <clears throat> do you feel like there's people that, that, is there a conversation for you around authenticity? Like, are you, what makes you authentically a, from the area or like a real Appalachian? Yeah. And it's crazy, you know, like I, I, I'm on the board of a food, like an Appalachian food culture organization. And this is something we talk about all the time, like, and, and you know, to some people it's like, well, if you, if your family wasn't in coal, then you don't count. Or it's like, you know, if you didn't grow Uh up with this dish, then you don't count. Um, and I don't think that anybody really means to be exclusionary. I think they just have to try so hard. They've always had to fight so hard to hang on to it, you know? Yeah. Does that, does that sound familiar to you? The authenticity question? It is very familiar and very charged. We just had a, um, this is part of, part of what's great about working at the, because I teach now at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Um, there was, we had some great discussions, and it's it's a really polarizing thing in the Native community, what makes you authentic and what doesn't. And so there's not even answers that, that make it true. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not an objective thing. But this is definitely something that comes up. And it used to be, it used to be like, if you're not res, you're not a real Indian. Mm-hmm. And um, it's different now because for at least a decade, 70% of Native people have been living in cities. So you can't maintain that kind of position without disappearing. Right. And so it's changed. Um, but there are different things now that, you know, there's blood quantum and there's language and there's land. And these are all very charged and very complex subjects. I, this is an incredibly broad question. Um, I'm wondering just how the book has been received by Native readers. Um it has gotten gotten uh, incredible reception from Native people in Oakland, and also uh, I just had a call with Native America Calling, which is like the biggest Native radio show, mm. and it's been around for a while. And we had ten different callers calling from around the country, and um, people were were really excited about the book. And it's supposed to be like a question um, segment but they were just calling to tell me how much they love the book and how important it is um, for them and and in Native communities. Which has to feel amazing. Yeah, it's the most important. Um, The Oakland Native reception has been particularly amazing, Um, and that's, you know, that's who I would most want to connect to it because Mm -hmm. it's most about people um, from that community, which I I worked in that community in the Behavioral Health Department, for almost a decade. So it was, this is who you want to really get what you're doing. And 
it was definitely scary. You know, I was ready for people to come after me mm-hmm. first, just because I wasn't sure if I did it right. And then once success happened, it sort of um, made me scared that people would sort of resent me or something. But mm-hmm. it, it hasn't happened, uh, knock on wood. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, What that's what's so wild about the timing, too. Um, you know, and, and I know that, that BuzzFeed article talks a lot about um, the idea of an, a native renaissance, which I don't know, you know, if you feel that way, um, we could definitely talk about that. But like, it's also like a really big moment for Oakland stories. Yeah, with blind spotting and uh, sorry to bother you coming out yeah. over the summer. The renaissance thing, you know, it, it's it's hard to say that it's not that, but I don't want it to be that. Mm. Just because the timing of, okay, so there's a sequence, there's a pattern that has happened before. So during civil rights, the occupation of Alcatraz um, got national attention. Mm -hmm. Nixon was especially sort of involved, I think, because he had a native football coach in high school. I think it may have taken, that may have uh, made him pay a little more attention to it. Um, Right after that, you get all these, this was the original native renaissance or what they called it. So the level of interest in the public eye in the collective spikes because of um, sort of being reminded, oh, yeah, there's Native people around. What are they up to now? Mm. And then it kind of goes away because we, we're we never going to – we're a small population relatively, and we're never going to be in a regular news cycle. And so it happened again, and this is for a very ridiculous reason, but it did not feel ridiculous at the time. Um, Dances with Wolves came out, mm. and it won, like – a bunch of Academy Awards, and this brought, like, once again, oh, yeah, Natives, what are they doing now? Mm-hmm. And then it literally, like, died again. And um, unfortunately, this time around, there's a couple different things happening that, but uh, Standing Rock happened. Yeah. And we're getting shot with rubber bullets and sprayed with pepper spray and attacked by dogs on TV. And not only that, but then Trump gets in, and, and people are really wanting to... Um, publish diverse books and publishing people are doing what they can do since they can't do anything politically. Mm -hmm. They can at least get marginalized voices out there. So I think the pairing of Standing Rock and then Trump getting in really um, has has been a big reason why publishing is getting more diverse. I mean, it was already, it's been increasingly getting more more and more diverse over the years. But I think that really pushed something even like more into motion. So the Renaissance thing, I would hope that it's not a thing that dies again. I would hope that there are more institutions and um, like the Institute, which churn out um, books and authors in a more consistent way because it's because it's an institution. So you have a structural way to sustain writers. Uh, I would also hope that seeing, seeing all these native writers have success, like me and Therese Mayotte with Heartberries mm-hmm. and, Tommy Pico and a group of other poets that are making poetry cool somehow. I mean, I think it's cool, but but it's never been able to achieve, I feel like, what it has right now. Um, I would hope that this would inspire Native writers to to try to, to, try to become authors um, so that there's a sustained attention to Native voices and not just, not just these uh, spikes and then deaths. Right, right. You know, it's also... It, it is just kind of news cycle attention and, and I guess 
maybe can't be helped. But I always worry too about how much that lets people just kind of be like, okay, well, this exists for other people. We don't need to, it doesn't need to be integrated into any kind of larger scene. It can just exist for the people in the smaller scene, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I would hate that, you know, for instance, um, if, if we got a liberal president and I feel like there's some readers that are sort of reading diverse books to sort of pat themselves on the back and yeah. say they're not part of the problem. Yeah. And I would hate it if we got somebody liberal in and they no longer felt that they need to, to do that because now we're doing great because we have a liberal leader again. That kind of thing scares me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I, I thought that was really funny slash awful in the, in that Buzzfeed piece, the, the, the anecdote about being at the writing conference and I think Teresa says something like, you know, you don't want two white women to come sit down beside you and be like, hey, absolve me of all my, like, liberal, liberal guilt. <laughs> um, can we jump tracks a little bit and talk about your kind of just day-to-day writing practice? Sure. Um, this book has been a tremendous success in a way that I would imagine could have potentially changed your daily life quite a bit. That is true. Um, well, it's been, it's actually been a lot of different things. Ever since becoming a parent, I feel like I threw out any, anything, any structure I was dependent on to be able to write mm. and just would write whenever I got the chance. Mm-hmm. So I think before, I don't think I knew how to use time very well before. Before I had all the time in the world and I didn't use it well. Mm-hmm. And then I, when I stopped feeling like I had time, I think I learned how to use it better. But if I'm home and I haven't been, I think I've been in hotel rooms more than I've been home this year, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, it's a good thing. I'm not complaining, but, uh, but it is disruptive to any kind of routine. Um, I actually love writing in hotel rooms. Mm. I've always loved it when I've, when I've had deadlines in the past, I'll get a hotel room for like four nights and just do a lot of work in that amount of time to meet the deadline. I think Toni um, Morrison does that or has done that. I think I remember reading an interview with her where she talks about that. Yeah, I think I've read that too. So you're in good um, So I've done a lot of hotel writing, and this will happen whenever it fits around my schedule. I don't. I'm not necessarily like a morning or a late night person. It's just whenever chunks of time appear in front of me, I'll try to fill them with writing. But if I'm home, generally, like I make breakfast for my son, get him off to school, and I'll usually go for a long run, which is often writing things are happening while I'm running, like I said, and I'll maybe work at home. One of the places that I work, I, I'm what you could call a prone writer. Okay. Uh, not all the time, but you, have you, you've heard of like different writers that lie down. Yeah. Like supine writers. Yeah. I think yeah. So I'm a prone writer, meaning I'm like on my stomach on the floor. And so one of those, one of my writing spaces is actually in my son's room, surrounded by his toys lying on his carpet and lying prone and writing like that. It's not great for my shoulders or back or probably anything anatomically. Um, but I just, at some point, started doing it. Uh, I think my dad laid on the floor a lot mm. growing up. Maybe he's related to that. Um, but then I'll usually, one strat- strategy to keep working is just to change scenery. So I'll go to a coffee shop and I'll work more after I work at home or after my run. And then same in the hotel room, I might just change from writing in bed to writing at the desk if it's a nice desk at a hotel room. 
So I, I really, if there's any routine, it's just to change things up and to try to get as much writing in as possible. Um, another thing that I do that's just part of the revision process is I'll print it out and I'll, I'll do pen edits mm-hmm. and I'll also read out loud. These are part of like my writing routine and, and my revision routine. And I have an app that, that um, has robot voices read your work to you. Oh my God, what is that app? It's called Voice Dream. Okay. And it's getting better and better. So I have this one robot's name is Micah. He's got a, a southern drawl. Uh-huh. And it makes him sound more human. And so I use him a lot for um, for reading the men characters. I've got a little boy for when it's a younger voice named Emilio that I use. And a, a Jennifer for the women voices. And, they're you know, they're not, they're far from perfect. But they're reading it to you. And yeah. you, can, you can hear things that your eyes don't see when you're trying to revise. Just like when you read out loud you can hear stuff that your eyes won't catch. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, if I have any routine, it's it's more like the ways that I try to re- revise and then I'm kind of all over the place as far as where I'll end up working. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that with the with the voice stream app. It's kind of like, um, like sometimes I like change the font, you know, like anything that kind of like jostles your brain a little bit, I think is good. Yeah, totally. That's really interesting about... Um, I can't imagine lying on my stomach and writing, but I'm glad it works for you. I'm just like, oh my God. I've never heard of anyone else doing it. It, it seems like a really bad idea. I just like it. That's funny. And so do you, are you a kind of like slash and burn, like write as fast as you can, as much as you can without getting too caught up in it? Or do you kind of like to dive in and hone every sentence and move forward that way? No, I, 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 I'm a maximalist as a, like a, when I first start on first draft, draft yeah. I just write. I just write a lot, and then revision. I use a minimalist approach, mm-hmm. so I don't like perfect my sins. I know there's slow writers that kind of like slowly build their narratives, and they're like making sure one sentence at a time that it's all. Um, and I'm not like that at all. Mm-hmm. I get it out, and then I figure out how to make it better. Yeah, I know there's like no one way to do it. Um, if I've learned anything having this show, it's definitely that. But but I do feel like the more I've trained myself to let stuff be ugly and to just go through and get it out and work with it later, the better it is. Yeah. But it's really hard to say like, okay, let, I'm going to leave that sentence is terrible and I'm going to leave it alone for right now. Yeah. Well, and it's really hard to come back to work that you're not excited about. Yeah, true. One thing that I do, and this is an exception to what I was just saying over and over, I'll work the beginning of whatever I'm writing. Mm-hmm. It's a short story. Um, or, you know, just a chapter of a novel so that when I re-enter it, usually I'll, I'll want to read, if I'm adding up more onto it, I'll want to read to get into the voice that I'm working with. Yeah. And if I can make the entrance, like the doorway, like a really pretty door, even if the house is a mess, if it feels good to step into it, then, then I'm already in. So that is one difference in, in regards to like getting it out or when I go back, I'll, I'll work the beginning the hardest. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it actually makes me think, even though the, on, on the surface, these things don't really have anything to do with each other, but I'm, I'm at an artist residency right now. I'm at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. And there's a novelist that I was talking to, and she was saying that she really, that she makes herself pour over coffee in the morning. And she's like, and I don't even really care about it, but it's like how I start writing. And so like, I've like, I've, it's like become very much this ritual that like gets her into the work. And, and yeah. I think about like reading, reading the door copy that same way of just being like, okay, I'm, I'm in this headspace now. 
I'm going to ask you one more question, which is a question I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations is, um, what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Creative satisfaction. Um, well, I really love first drafts, like just to get new work out. Mm. And I always feel really happy about it. And then I look at it the next day and realize it's garbage. That part's not satisfaction, but the, the you know, when it, something first comes out and it feels really like, I don't know where that came from kind of yeah. thing, that feels really good. Um, and then the moment when I, when I get something in good enough shape where I read it out loud and I know that it's like, like if I'm approaching a deadline with my agent or something, which I was just at McDowell Colony for a week and I finished a short story while I was there. So meeting a deadline with her and keeping the integrity of our deadlines and that last read before I send, like I'll catch things that I'll be super happy that I catch. And, um, and I'll just, I'll feel good that I got into good enough shape to feel like I can send it. That feels like creative satisfaction. Um, and working with short stories right now, I'm writing short stories is really satisfying mm. because I'm not stuck in sort of a novel. Right. And I was there for a long time. So it's kind of refreshing. Right. So is that, or do you have a, a are you working through a collect for a collection? Yeah, I'm working for the collection. I'm going to send it to her in September. Today's conversation was edited by Phoebe Wang and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at wmfapodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at wmfapodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at cfballastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.